Um, today we are um, taking a one-off passage before we return to Ephesians chapter 1 um, next Sunday. Um, therefore, our sermon text today is 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 to 15. So 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 to 15. And I think that you'll find this, uh, th- this one-off sermon text is, is both fitting for um, a sermon on a Sunday still early in a new year, as well as fitting a fitting text for a children's ministry director's retirement. But as we look at this, I think it's important that I remind us all of the context of 2 Timothy. Um, in 2 Timothy, Paul knows that his death is not that far off. He's writing from a prison cell. He knows he's facing death. And he's writing final instructions and exhortations to, to Timothy, his, his true beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy, who he left to, to pastor that, that church in Ephesus. Now, think about, think about this. Think about this context. Paul knowing that, that, that this is perhaps the last thing that he will ever be able to say to Timothy. You know, what, what would you say, what would you write in a last letter, a last email, a last text? What would you say to someone who you dearly loved? Very, you know, a family member, a dear friend, a child, spouse. Well, what would you say to them if you knew this was going to be the last thing you were going to say to them? You, know, you would be careful to say what was most important, what was crucial, what was essential. You'd be careful to say what you wanted to make certain that they, they didn't miss, that they didn't forget, they didn't overlook. And Paul's doing the same thing to Timothy. And he's doing the same thing to us. He's reminding us of, of what's, what's essential, what's crucial. And in the passage just before the one that we're going to look at today, Paul, Paul warned Timothy that in the last days there will, become, there will come times of difficulty. There will be many people in the church and among the church who have the appearance of godliness without having true godliness. There'll be plenty of of hypocrites, of wolves in sheep clothing. People who are around the church, but they're there uh, with, with bad intentions to manipulate and take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. And in our text today, Paul commends Timothy for how he's different from them. How he is not like that, he's not like those who, who, who are godless and, and, and merely have the appearance of godliness without true godliness. And, and, and he also calls Timothy to, to, to persevere in standing firm and in, in being different from them, standing firm on the truth of God's word. And so our text today really forms a bridge between that warning about the, the godless who only have the appearance of godliness and then the two verses that come right after ours, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You know, two verses that many of you know. Verses that speak of the Bible's authority and the Bible's sufficiency. So what comes right after our passage is all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what comes between this warning and this reality about those who only have the appearance of godliness 
in this incredible statement about the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible is, is this passage that we're looking at today. And so here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, life-giving word. I'll begin reading 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to look at what Paul says to the disciple, to the, to the one who is in union with Christ. These three headings. The character of a disciple the opposition faced by a disciple, and the perseverance of a disciple. So the character, the opposition, and the perseverance of those who are truly united to Christ by faith and who desire to, to walk faithfully, to live faithfully, as they attempt to, to live in obedience to all that God's Word teaches. And so first, let's look at the character of a disciple. Look with me at verse 10. Paul says to Timothy, "'You, however, have followed my teaching,' my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Now, this, this is a long list. It's a long list, and we're, we're going to work through each of those pretty quickly, all under this first heading, so I'll go ahead and prepare you. The first heading is longer than the next two headings, okay? It's probably as long as the next two combined, so don't be thrown off by that. But, but you see, this list in verse 10 is in contrast to the, the false teachers who are looking to take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable in the church. So Paul says to Timothy, you, however, in other words, you're different. You're not like them. You, however, are and must continue to be different and distinct from these false teachers. And so listen to what Paul said about, about these false teachers in the previous passage. If you look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 to 5, he has a long list. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now, that's a long list of, of, of sinful attitudes and attributes and actions, but, but in our passage today, Paul gives a new list, a new list of attitudes and actions, new list of attitudes and actions that disciples, those who are united to Christ by faith, those who are filled by the Holy Spirit, those who desire 
in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit, upon God's grace, to live as becomes followers of Christ, that are to have in common as we seek to be faithful in our callings to love and serve the Lord in life and in ministry. And so listen again to what Paul says in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And I, and I, want, to, I want us to spend just a few moments looking at each of these. Now, there are seven of them. And so while I only have three headings, the first one does have seven subpoints. So maybe I am preaching a 10-point sermon. But, but don't think of it that way. Don't think of it that way. Um, so the first is... The character of a disciple is formed by true teaching. Paul says, you, however, have followed my teaching. See, Paul begins with commending Timothy for faithfully following Paul's apostolic teaching. And even in a church like this one, we shouldn't just skip past this. We shouldn't take this for granted. Faithful discipleship always begins with true and faithful teaching, true and faithful teaching of, of, of doctrine, of theology that we find in God's Word. Now, Paul is going to immediately talk about conduct, but, but Paul starts with teaching and doctrine and theology because faithful teaching and true doctrine, it, that's always central to faithful and right, responsible Christian discipleship. It always is. You know, I've mentioned to you before the, the third question in our Shorter Catechism. It asks, what do the Scriptures principally teach? And there's a two-part answer. The scriptures principally teach what we are to believe about God, theology, doctrine, who we believe God to be, and therefore who, who we, who we believe, understand ourselves to be because of what God's word says, what we are to believe about God, and what duty God requires of us. You see, right and true, faithful, responsible doctrine and theology is always connected to the, the commands the ethical implications of Scripture. And Paul's going to get there. But the heart of a true disciple of Jesus will hunger and crave for faithful biblical exposition from the whole counsel of God's Word. As opposed to running after every new idea, every new trend, every new fad that comes along. And so, so let, let me ask you, friends. Does that describe you? Are you testing what you hear, even from this pulpit, against God's word? You need to be doing this. You need to be testing everything. I mean, we put scripture up on the screen, but open your Bible, open your app, follow along. Test what, even what you hear us say with what the Bible says. Are you testing what you hear on Christian radio against the truth of God's word? Are you testing what you read in the latest, greatest spiritual book or popular Christian book against the truth of God's word? You know, don't just trust the, the recommendations of your friends. And don't just trust your gut and your, and your own feelings. Rather, trust the truth of God's word. Test everything. That the character of a disciple is to be formed by true teaching. The second is the character of a disciple is demonstrated by their conduct. Look at verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct. The Paul says, Timothy, you're a true disciple. You followed my teaching, but you've also followed my conduct. You've not only believed the truth that I've taught you, but I know you've also been faithful to, to live it out. To live it out. Now, a disciple, see, a disciple does not merely believe the right things. He or she seeks to live them out. 
faithfully in their daily lives. But I'm not talking about perfectionism. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about some self-righteous approach to the Bible in the Christian life. But I'm talking about what Paul's talking about. A sincere desire to be obedient to everything that we are taught in God's word. A sincere desire to, to live a godly life. And a sincere, a sincere desire to be, to be quick to, to repent of our sin whenever we fail. To acknowledge our sin. To, to, to run to God and to claim the grace that Christ has purchased for us with his life, death, and resurrection. You see, Paul's not talking about legalism or perfectionism, neither am I. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but God's saving grace never leaves us alone in our sin. And thank God that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and gives us new hearts to love God and to love his word. And this is why faithful disciples resolve to live in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit as we endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ. Now, have you ever heard that statement before? The answer is yes, you have. You may not notice it, but, and that's okay. It's the third, it's the third membership bow that we ask everybody who joins this church. Do you promise to live in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit as we endeavor to live as becomes followers of Christ? See, that's what Paul's talking about. So is that you? Does your conduct match that of a disciple? Do you endeavor, do you desire, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, to live as becomes a follower of Christ? The third is the character of a disciple is demonstrated by their aim in life. Look again at verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. So Paul says, Timothy, you followed my aim in life, which also implies that, that, that uh, the aim and the purpose of Paul's life was evident to Timothy. But you know, of course it was. That your aim, your purpose in life, my aim, my purpose in life, our priorities are always evident to the people who are closest to us. The people who know us best always know what, what our true aims, our true priorities, our true purposes in life are. Okay, well, well, what was the aim of Paul's life? How do we summarize that? Well, one commentator says that he believes Paul gives us his, his, an answer to this in an autobiographical statement on the aim of his life in Acts 20, verse 24. And it's also worth noting, you know, not only the, is Timothy the one left to pastor the church in Ephesians, and in Ephesus, but Paul says, Acts 20, 24, to the elders of the church in Ephesus, Here's what Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish the, my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, what, that's the aim of Paul's life. What, what is the aim of your life? Or what are you living what are you aiming? Many of you know, I mean, I've, 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 I've preached a lot of funerals lately. Looks like there, 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 there are more that I will preach.
you do know that the people who know you best, your, your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings, your closest friends, your closest colleagues all know the aim of your life. You know that, right? That, they, that, that, that none of us are fooling anyone. Whenever you're gone, how do you want people to remember you? If you're honest, how would they remember you? That's sobering. It's sobering, and it's one of the gifts that I receive as a pastor, as I, as I walk with families through burying loved ones and as I preach funerals. I, I'm, I get that sober reminder often. A more humorous spin on that same idea was um, it, from a, a Peanuts cartoon, a Charlie Brown cartoon. And in this little cartoon strip, uh, Linus is throwing a stick with Snoopy uh, for Snoopy to go fetch and retrieve. And so Linus, he throws the stick, and Snoopy starts to head off after it, to chase after it. But then he stops, pauses, thinks about it, and then decides against it. And then the cartoon tells us this, that he thought to himself, Wait a minute. I want people to have more to say about me after I'm gone than he was a nice guy, he chased sticks. He, he was a nice guy, he chased sticks. She was a great lady. But if Ron, if she chased sticks. It really wasn't apparent to me that, that his aim and his goal in life was to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love his neighbor as himself. She was a great lady, but I had no idea that, that her aim in life was to glorify God in all that she did. You see, Paul never merely chased sticks. That he lived for the glory of God. And so, and so, so what about you? What will those people who know you best say about you after you're gone? For what will they say you lived for? Will they say he or she lived for the glory of God? They will know what, what, they, what we lived for. They know. The, the, the first question in our shorter catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? Many of you know the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We know that answer. We know it up here. You know, we can say it. But is that your functional chief end? And if not, what needs to change in your life for the people who know you best to be able to say, yes, that your aim in life, my aim in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever? The fourth is that a char the character of a disciple is demonstrated by their faith. In verse 10, Paul says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith. That Paul was a man who lived by faith. And, and Timothy knew this and had followed in, in Paul's footsteps, trusting Christ and trusting the promises that are found in God's word. You see, disciples who are in union with Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, desiring to live faithfully and obediently to all that God's word calls us to, um, will trust, they will, live, they will trust in God's promises. They will live by faith as they even attempt 
things for God's glory that are clearly aligned with God's word, but that are actually beyond our natural capacity to accomplish in our own strength. The disciples will walk by faith, live by faith. And so as we're still early in the new year, perhaps resolutions have already, we've forgotten about those days ago, and that's okay. But in this new year, you know, what is on your prayer list? What are you praying for in 2022? What are you begging and pleading with God, trusting God to do in your own life, in your own heart, in your own character, in your friends, in your family? The fifth thing, the character of a disciple is demonstrated by their patience. And so now we're really getting... Now we're getting in, now I'm meddling now. We start talking about patience, having patience. Paul says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience. That Greek word translated patience can also be translated as long-suffering. And, you know, that's how the old translations used to, you know, used to put it down. And I think that's a helpful, that's a helpful translation, long-suffering. I think that helps explain really what it means to be patient, long-suffering, to be able to suffer for a long time without giving up and without blowing up. You know, and I said this to the first service. I didn't mean to, but it just kind of came out. I'll say, I think that about half of us in this room, we think about being patient and our struggle with patience, our struggle with with being long-suffering. Remember I said long, being patient or long-suffering is to suffer for a long time without blowing up and without giving up. And my guess is that about half of us struggle with not giving up, and about half of us struggle with not blowing up, and God has us all marry each other. And so we, we, we need patience. We need patience to one another, other people. We need patience in our circumstances. And that's what Paul's calling Timothy to. See, patience is listed as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and I think we can all agree that patience is most certainly proof of the ongoing, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in a disciple's life, especially when that disciple is, you know, a type A person, driven, go-getter like Paul. And yet you see that a disciple of Jesus should never simply say, I wish I could be more patient, but I simply can't. You shouldn't ever say that. And I know that, that most of us in this room, because of the city we live in, most of us are you know, type A, driven, hard-charging people. And that's exactly why we came to this city, why we continue to live in this city. However, Paul and Timothy are proof that, that driven, successful, hard-charging Christians can also display patience. Patience that is a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. And so listen to what Paul says about himself in 1 Timothy 1, verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And I think this is what Paul's saying, that as we grow more and more in our our understanding of just how patient Jesus was and remains to be with us, the Holy Spirit uses God's word to move and work in our hearts and to grow us in our patience towards other people. 
and these difficult circumstances that we encounter. The sixth is that the character of a disciple is demonstrated by their love. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love. And love goes hand in hand with patience towards people. Love for people, which Paul had, Timothy had, as he followed in Paul's footsteps, it's true concern and compassion and commitment to the best interest and the needs of other people. That a true disciple's life displays evidence of living out practical love for other people. You know, how, how can I love my neighbor as myself? How can I serve them? How, how can I use my gifts and my talents for them? That's a great question to be asking yourself as we begin a new year. You know, in what ways am I serving? In what ways should I be serving? In what ways should I be deploying my gifts and my talents to help love my neighbors as myself? The seventh is the character of a disciple is demonstrated by their steadfastness. Paul says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And that Greek word translated as steadfastness is hupomone. Hupomone, that's a word that maybe some of you men who were coming to the men's Bible study in the fall as we go through James, you may remember that, that Greek word, hupomone, and it means to, to be able to superstand for a long time under a very, very heavy load without giving up or, or giving in. And I gave you guys back in the fall the picture of a bodybuilder, Olympic-level bodybuilder holding the heavy weight above his head and his muscles bulging and his veins ready to burst and he's sweating and he's shaking, but he's holding that weight up. Well, earlier in verse 10, Paul uses the word patience, long-suffering, which I think probably refers to patience with people. Here, steadfastness or hupomone refers to patience, steadfastness endurance, perseverance in impossibly difficult circumstances. That a true disciple learns how to trust in God's promises found in his word to find the grace from God to hold on and to hold up despite trials and difficult circumstances. I mean, don't forget that Paul wrote 2 Timothy from a prison cell as he faced death. Now, this this brings us to our second heading. That was the, you know, the character of a disciple. Now we come to the opposition faced by a disciple. And I just mentioned, Paul was writing from a prison cell. He knew that following Jesus is not easy. Now maybe you're thinking that as I go through that long list of seven uh, traits, you're thinking, of course it's not easy. Who can, who can be patient? Who can, have, who can do all the things you just said? Well, it's not easy to follow Christ. It wasn't easy for Paul. It wasn't easy for Timothy. Friends, don't be surprised when it's not easy for you. There's opposition. There's opposition at times from within. There's opposition oftentimes from without. And so listen to what Paul says in verses 10 and 11. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So Paul reminds Timothy of his own persecutions and sufferings for the sake of the gospel at these three places, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. 
Paul was driven out of Antioch, and he had to flee Iconium before he was stoned, and then Paul was actually stoned in Timothy's hometown of Lystra. Now, I think it's reasonable for us to assume that Timothy witnessed, or he certainly knew about, knew people who who did witness Paul's persecution in Lystra. And yet, listen to how my friend Bill Barclay puts this. In spite of that, Timothy was later willing to join Paul on his journeys. And Paul may well be reminding Timothy of that fact. From the very beginning, Timothy has counted the cost of following and ministering for Christ. Paul's intention in recounting these hardships is to encourage Timothy to press on. You see, verse 11 ends with, Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And I don't think we should run past that. We shouldn't skip over how Paul takes the opportunity to remind Timothy one last time of God's faithfulness, of God's presence, of God's commitment to Paul, of God's commitment to this this mission, of great commission of taking the gospel to the nations, this this, uh, mention that Paul has of God's sovereignty over these things. And if we hold all of these things together, God's faithfulness and his presence and his commitment to his people, his commitment to his mission and his sovereignty, all these things together provide Christians with our source of strength and comfort in the midst of opposition and persecution and suffering for the sake of the gospel. Suffering whenever we find ourselves seeking to live faithfully as followers of Christ. And all followers of Jesus will need this source of strength and comfort from time to time. Listen to what Paul says in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's that's not just the missionaries. That's not just the, the pastors. All means all. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, a faithful life, following Jesus, will be persecuted. As one commentator put it, living a godly life in Christ is not an optional extra for the super spiritual. This is the normal Christian experience, living a godly life. It is the God-related life of the Christian as opposed to the godless life. The persecution is not because of the Christian's immorality. That wouldn't be persecution. That would be discipline. The persecution is not to be because of the Christian's unpleasantness, that's just because, you know, in other words, if you're a jerk and people don't like you, that's not persecution. Okay, so don't, don't be a jerk. Christians will be persecuted for living the Christian life, which at least implies, if it doesn't include, declaring the Christian message. We cannot expect the call to repentance to be warmly received by those whose whole life is built on a rejection of God or the proclamation of of an alternative God. As someone once said, race car drivers should expect some crashes. You know, football players should expect some injuries. Baseball players you know, sh- should know that the ball is going to hit them from time to time. Soldiers expect to be shot at on occasion. Christians should expect some degree of persecution, some degree of opposition. Some degree of rejection, of marginalization, of of mockery. 
Now, of course, we should never look for any of this, but Paul's telling Timothy and us that as long as we desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we'll never have to look for it. The opposition, the rejection will come and find us. And it's not likely to look like Paul's stoning, but it will look and it feel like being ignored, being mocked, being rejected, being marginalized. Perhaps losing opportunities. And this is what Jesus told us. Do you remember that when we were in the Gospel of John? There in the upper room, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he said it multiple ways. Here's one of the ways he said it. In John 15, verse 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And the Apostle John heard this. He wrote the following in 1 John 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. But we are often surprised, aren't we? Why are we so surprised? John Calvin puts it this way, there will always be wicked men that are thorns in our sides. And Paul goes on to say as much in the next verse, in in 2 Timothy 3, verse 13. While evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You see, simply put, Paul says that we should not expect things in this life to just get better and better and easier and easier and be smooth sailing, all downhill. Actually, just the opposite. If we desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, and I hope we all do desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, then we will encounter both evil people who oppose the plain truth of God's word, and we will encounter imposters who deliberately try to lead God's people astray through intentional and wicked deception. And even even if we simply try to live a godly life in Christ Jesus and just keep our heads down and just live faithfully as obedient disciples, some people will reject us for that, mock us for that, marginalize us for that. As my friend Bill says again, these are sobering words. They should also call the church to vigilance, guarding the truth, holding fast to the word of God, studying it, and being transformed by it. And and that's really where Paul goes next in this third and final heading. He talks about the perseverance of a disciple. And also kind of implied in this is, is a concerted effort to make sure that we pass this faith on to the next generation. That's where Paul goes next. And here, what I'm about to read to you is the only command in our passage today. You may think, Richard, well, it felt like you were giving us a lot of commands. Okay, do this and stop doing that. No, that's just the Holy Spirit telling you, okay, to, you know, work on your own heart. There have been no command, no imperative so far in this passage, but here we have the, the first one. And it's a command to continue to remain, to stay, to reside, to persevere in faith and truth. And so look at verses 14 and 15. But as for you, continue, remain, stay, persevere in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation, through faith in Christ Jesus. And so what is Timothy to continue in? 
Well, the answer is that he's to continue in what he has learned from the sacred writings of what we today call the Old Testament. And Timothy is to continue in what he has been taught by the apostolic proclamation of the gospel, which will eventually be known as the New Testament. So in a word, these verses teach us about the the connection and the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The sacred writings of the Old Testament are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Because the Old Testament teaches us about who God is and about his holiness and his demand for holiness in us and how we fall short of God's standard in our sin and also of our need for an atoning provision be made for our sin, our need of a Savior. And the Old Testament goes even further to instruct us on how to be on the lookout for the coming Savior. The Savior that we read about during Advent, and we learned about in, in Isaiah 7, 9, 11, and, and, and 53, and many other chapters. This Savior who would come, an offspring of the woman, who through his own suffering would crush the head of the serpent. This Savior who would live the perfect sinless life we have all failed to live, who would die the atoning death on Calvary's cross to pay for our sins in full, who would rise from the grave to show us that all of this is true and there really is resurrection power for all who trust in him. And then the apostolic teaching of the New Testament makes all of this so very clear that all of the Bible, including the Old Testament, is pointing us to Jesus. See, remember, these are Paul's final words to Timothy. And these words echo Jesus' words to his disciples after the resurrection. After the resurrection, in Luke 24, verses 44 to 47, Jesus says this to his disciples. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, everything written about me, Jesus says, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, That's a shorthand way of saying the Old Testament must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. See, put another way, that what Paul's telling Timothy, what Jesus said to the disciples, what we need to make sure we don't miss is that all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is pointing us to Christ. It's pointing us to Christ. Christ is the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God that all of the other lambs sacrificed in the tabernacle, in the temple, point to. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Because Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to to be made wise for salvation, and that's faith in Christ Jesus. That's trusting in him. Salvation is not found in us trying as hard as we can to be good people. You can take verse 10 that we've been looking at over and over and over again and say, okay, I'm going to try to do all of those things, all seven of those things. You will never be able to do enough. You will never be able to amass and accumulate enough good things on this side to outweigh your sin on this side. The Bible says God's holy. He is perfect and perpetually holy. His standard for having a relationship with him is perfection. It's righteousness. 
And no one's righteous. No, not one. That's why we must trust in Christ. You see, he, he died the atoning death on Calvary's cross to wash away all of our sin, to wash it away. But he lived that perfect, righteous life so that God the Father could credit to us Jesus the Son's righteousness. So that we're not just, not merely wa- cleansed from our sin, but we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And Jesus rose from the grave show us that there is real resurrection power for all who trust in Christ. Resurrection power that raises us to new birth, to new spiritual life from our state of spiritual death, that we are given new hearts, new life. We're made new creations, that we are given resurrection power to walk in newness of life. This is why all, all who desire forgiveness of their sins all who desire to be saved, you must trust in Christ. Do you know this Christ? If you do not know him, trust in him. Go, go, go to God in prayer, acknowledge your sin, cry out for God to, to forgive you because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and he will. He will, and he will change your life. Now, Jesus and Paul both clearly taught the Old Testament scriptures point to Jesus as this long-awaited Savior. Therefore, in a simple summary, Paul is telling Timothy to persevere, continue in living by the Bible. Paul says, Timothy, read the Bible, learn the Bible, remember the Bible, memorize the Bible, love the Bible, teach and preach the Bible, all of it, and how all of it points everyone to trust in Christ for salvation and Timothy, lead your church by the Bible. Live by the Bible. And so what a, what a great reminder, what a great challenge for all of us in 2022. And notice that Timothy is to continue and persevere in what he had learned and to remember from whom he learned it. And this most likely refers to Timothy's mother and his grandmother, which is what a great blessing to have a mother and a grandmother who would teach you the articles of the faith teach you the Bible, to pray for you, to evangelize you, to bring you to a faithful church. Most likely refers to Timothy's mother, grandmother, and even Paul himself. So let, let me end with this. Parents, grandparents, older siblings, youth ministry volunteers, children's ministry volunteers. I mean, can we say to all of our church's children, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. That you know how your pastors and your Sunday school teachers and your volunteers and your parents and your grandparents, you know what they have taught you and you know how their lives match the teaching of their lips. So now continue in the truth of God's word because you know it is true and you know from whom you have learned it. You know, can, can we say that? You know, we must be able to say that. And I know this is a challenge, but this is also a glorious vision of what discipleship can and should be like inside the local church and inside the homes of families in the local church. And on this day, I must say, Helen, I know you didn't want to sit up there, but you did, so Helen, 
You have devoted your life to taking the heart of the gospel from every passage in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You've devoted your life to taking the heart of the gospel to the heart of the child. And we are so very thankful the Lord brought you to CEPC for this final leg of your ministry career. And CEPC's children for the past 30 years, even before Helen came, but including her six years, can very much relate to what Paul says to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. But so can the children who were at Grace North Shore in the Chicago area and the children who attended VBS at Ballantyne Presbyterian Church in Charlotte and the children at First Pres Chattanooga and at Christ the King and at Park City's Presbyterian Church in Dallas and at Trinity PCA in Charlottesville, Virginia and going back even to students involved in Young Life in Richmond, Virginia and even the public school students that you taught before that. What a legacy of a life invested in the next generation. And what a challenge for CEPC to continue to grow in our own personal discipleship and in our investment in the discipleship of the next generation. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. You, however, have followed my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and my persecutions and sufferings. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word and the way it challenges us and the way it points us to Jesus and the truth and the comfort and even the, the power of the gospel for living this life out and for passing this faith on to the next generation. Help us to do this, we ask, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.